Hi, I'm Joe Riley, and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. Paul Edelman is a psychologist who has worked with some of the most successful hedge fund managers and family businesses in the world. And today we take a deep dive into how psychological techniques can be used to look for investment managers. We look at how Paul applied what he learned from his great mentors to filter for the investment management skill set, the importance of uncovering conceptual and probabilistic thinkers, and why you probably shouldn't be using the Myers-Briggs. We get a bit into some very interesting weeds today, including some of the history of psychology and its analytical concepts, but Paul has a great way of tying it all together to more deeply understand how people think about markets and interact with each other in high-pressure situations. Paul Edelman is a coach and facilitator at Edelman & Associates in Boston, where he helps families and family businesses to be more effective in achieving their goals. Paul holds a Bachelor of Science in Physics from MIT and a PhD in Personality and Developmental Psychology from Harvard University, where his teaching and research focused on group dynamics. Please enjoy my fascinating conversation with Paul Edelman. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guests or hosts should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? Were you born in a business family? I grew up in a business family on Wild. When I was born, my family was living in Levittown. And Levittown, you may or may not be aware, was a planned community that was built by the Levitt brothers for GIs who were returning from World War II. And uh, the premise was that you could put $100 down and buy a house for $9,000 at 3% interest or whatever the interest rates were back then. The only catch was that all the houses were the same, essentially. Right. But the Levitt brothers were clever in that they made some nice shared amenities. There were these town pools and these village greens and other nice resources. So it was kind of like a socialist utopia. And as a kid growing up there for the first eight years of my life, I was very happy. But my parents had some success with their little business, and that led them to move 20 minutes away to Garden City. Now, Garden City, and you may or may not be aware is a kind of bedroom community for Wall Street. There are three stops of the Long Island Railroad, and it's a very convenient place to live if you're commuting to Manhattan. It's a whole different scene from Garden City. It too was a planned community. It was planned by this guy, the last name was Stewart, who built the Garden City Hotel. He was a railroad magnet, and he had the railroad come right through Garden City and stop in front of his hotel. And uh, they built a club there, the Garden City Casino that had tennis courts, and there were three other golf clubs in the town, and there was Stewart built a cathedral and a private bo- private school for boys called St. Paul's School. And uh, they had debutante balls and so on. It was a whole different picture from Levittown. So I enrolled in school, showed up for the fourth grade. And one of the first friends I made, his grandfather was the founder of a Fortune 100 company. And uh, he lived a whole different life. And so I had the occasion to go over to his house and, and go to the beach club with him and get invited skiing and stuff like that. And uh, it was completely different world. So I was, in Jim Grubman's terms, an immigrant to the land of wealth. So I think this had an influence on me longer term in terms of my interest in this field. But anyway, I went off to college and I started out studying physics. And ultimately, I took psychology courses as well. And uh, this was physics at MIT. Yes. And physics, from my point of view, is a good way to learn something about solving problems in a systematic or structured way. And so I think that's an important part of who I am. Also, 
I learned in calculus, you learn there's two important things you can do with a function. You can differentiate and you can integrate. And it turns out that in thinking, differentiation and integration play just as central a role and in decision-making. But the other thing that you learn in freshman physics is Newton's laws. One of his laws is called the law of inertia, which says that a body in motion tends to stay in motion unless acted upon by another force. And sometimes a body is acted upon by multiple forces. And in the interpersonal realm, it represents a form of conflict. And in physics, you do a force field diagram and you add up the forces and you essentially try to come up with some integration of all the forces. And through that, you determine which way the body's ultimately going to move. But in families, likewise, there are both visible and invisible forces. There are also forces that are internal to the family and external to the family. And these forces are sometimes within the awareness of the family members, but as often as not, some of the forces are outside of people's awareness. But they all exert an influence, and they all have something to do with the direction in which the family either continues to move or chooses to move that might be different from the inertial path. You switched to psych. So I switched to psychology. A short version of the story is I, I liked that better. I also found that I could do better in the competitive environment of MIT, but I managed to graduate with a degree in physics, and then I went on to immediately to grad school in psychology. Now, how would you contrast the psychology departments at MIT and Harvard at the time? Was MIT heavily influenced by Chomsky? Was it was it heavily quantitative? Yeah. So the, what some would call the psychology department at MIT is formally known as the Department of Brain and Cognitive Science. So that tells you something right away. And, and it's got a number, right? It's like number 20-something. Yeah, course nine. Go Physics was course eight, so I progressed from course eight to course nine. <laughs> yeah, and the buildings are numbered too. Right. That's, that's a whole nother story. But yeah, so brain and cognitive science at MIT is consistent with a kind of reductionistic view of the world, which is not un uncommon among scientists. They were like, we don't really care what happens when people interact with each other. We're much more interested in what's going on at the neuronal level. What are the chemical reactions that take place across the synaptic junction? That was MIT's notion of psychology. It was not humanistic. It was really, the brain is a machine. We're interested in machines. How does the machine work? Tell us about the mechanics the, and the chemistry of this machine. That's what MIT wanted to study. However, there were exceptions to that. Now, Noam Chomsky, whom you mentioned, was not in the psych, he was not in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Science. He was in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy. But anyway, it wasn't the brain science that I was really interested in. I was more interested in the social psych, but in between social and brain science was cognitive psychology. So at MIT, they were interested in how the machine worked to do what it was ostensibly responsible for doing, which was thinking, because thinking is very valued at MIT. <laughs> okay, so you moved to the psychology department at Harvard, interesting yeah. place in the late yeah. 70s, phasing out of behavioralism, maybe more into cognitive psych. Could you tell us what the department was like in the when you got there in the 70s? Uh, yes. Yeah. So Fred Skinner was still there. His last student was this guy, Robert Epstein, and uh, Dick Harenstein was still there. So he and Skinner were kind of allies. And Harenstein was doing this very unpopular work on the heritability of intelligence and right. basically 
arguing that black people were inferior and that there was no point in trying to change them, that affirmative action and all that stuff was just a big waste of time and energy and so on. So that was the experimental wing of the department. And uh, there was a strong feeling that uh, this was not benign stuff that they were doing over there, that uh, they had a social agenda. And uh, so I wanted nothing to do with- And Skinner was part of that? I don't know Skinner's politics, but the simplistic stimulus response, reward and punishment kind of mentality was not a, didn't, it wasn't rooted in humanism, shall we say. And there, I think there was a time or an earlier time when it was, there was a department of social relations or a department of psychology. Right. They came together to form the department of psychology and social relations. And then they decided to divide the department in three. So there was the experimental wing, which was Herrenstein and Skinner, mostly. There was a guy, David Buss, who came along as a junior faculty and ended up sitting on my thesis committee. Then there was the cognitive wing of the department, and there was Steve Coslin right. was the central figure there, but also Ellen Langer was part of the cognitive wing of the department, and she came up with this thing she called mindfulness. Her original research, she called research on mindlessness, but the flip side of it was mindfulness. And we know where that story went, right? That became a big thing. We're going back uh, generations here. And there was a student in the cognitive wing named Steve Pinker. Sure. I was in some classes with Pinker, and I remember sitting behind him in class, and he raised his hands, and he began by saying, as it were. And I said to myself, wow, this guy's going to go far. <laughs> I said, he's already assimilated the cultural norms of the peer group. What was Stephen Pinker like as a student? Just like what he's like as a leading intellectual today. But he knew where he was going. I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect he comes from an academic family. The biggest predictor of whether or not you go into a given business is whether or not that's the family business. It's uh, interesting because his daughter is a comedy writer. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Anyway, but let's get back to you. Values and interpersonal conflict. Why did you write about that? This is esoteric. So Robert Bales had developed this Simlog system, which was an outgrowth of his interaction process analysis, which was the first method used in social psychology for real-time uh, observation and scoring of group dynamics. So that evolved with the help of some higher mathematics into Simlog, which meant that using factor analysis, Bales was able to look at adjectives that people use to describe each other's behavior and tease out the underlying factor structure of the representational space in which people think about each other's behavior. So it turns out that the way we think about behavior is not totally free form. It has an underlying structure to it. So one of the key dimensions is friendly versus unfriendly. It has face validity. As humans, it makes sense that when we encounter other people, we form an impression of whether they're more or less friendly. Likewise, Another dimension that's part of the structure of our perception of interpersonal behavior is dominance versus submissiveness. And this comes right from our social primate heritage, which monkey is the lead monkey, right? So you put humans together in a group and right away, their antenna go up, metaphorically speaking, to sense who's the more dominant monkey in the group. So you can um, measure this in real time, just listening to what people are saying? Yeah. So if you make a comment to me, I can ask three questions if I'm trained in Bales's methodology. That question represents what Bales calls an act. Okay. In other words, a flow of behavior taking place be between us and one discrete act is you ask me a question. So in real time, if somebody was sitting behind a one-way mirror observing us, they could code that act. So the way they code the act using Bales' system is they ask themselves three questions. Say, was it friendly or unfriendly for Joe to ask that question? 
And some questions clearly have a hostile tone to them, and some questions clearly have a positive tone to them. I would say that question was probably neutral in tone. So there's no clear, I wouldn't score it clearly negative or positive. You could Then you could ask a question, was it dominant or was it submissive? And when somebody asks a question, it depends in part on the context. Like, for example, if they interrupt to ask the question, you'd probably score it as dominant. If they're self-effacing when they ask the question, Columbo, I'm just a guy in a wrinkled trench coat with a cheap cigar, you probably score it as submissive, right? <laughs> right? The way you ask the question, you probably score it as neutral. And then the third dimension, and this dimension is a little more complex and it's mathematically, it's not as well supported as the other two dimensions, but there's a dimension that Bale's called task orientation versus emotionally expressive. And in the literature of the 70s on leadership, there emerged the concept, like a dual concept of leadership in groups where they talked about the task leader of the group and the socio-emotional leader of the group. And they also talked about two types of leadership, task-oriented leadership or socio-emotional leadership. So both could be found in the same person or they could be found in different persons within a group. But both are important to the health of the group. In other words, you need somebody to drive the group in the direction of getting something done. But if that's all you do, you erode the positive feelings in the group, and eventually people burn out, or they start to fight with each other, or they get angry at the leader, or whatever. So somebody's got to pay attention to refilling the reservoir of positive feelings that exist among people. Otherwise, they'll find it difficult to collaborate on an ongoing basis. Bale's really pointed everybody in that direction, and the field went there. But I would, I think Bales deserves credit for kind of making that distinction. But anyway, so you could ask yourself with respect to the act, was it task-oriented or was it emotionally expressive? And that particular question, I would say, was probably task-oriented because you're trying to move the conversation forward and you're trying to produce some information. It's not like you were saying, how did you feel about this, Paul? Which mm -hmm. might have been emotionally expressive. So that that question probably would have been coded in Bales's three-dimensional system as pure F or purely in the forward dimension. See, in a three space, he had up and down is easy. In a cube, dominance versus submissiveness was up versus down or U versus D. Positive versus negative was right versus left. And then task orientation versus emotional expression, he represented that as F being forward, like moving forward with the task, or B, being backward, as in, let's step back and talk about how we feel about this. So anyway, any act could get, get coded with three letters. So the ideal leader tends to have a predominance of UPF acts. In other words, they tend to be somewhat dominant, somewhat positive, and somewhat in the direction of accomplishing the task. Bales put together some adjectives, and he called that a purposeful democratic task leader. The UPF leader was the Balesian ideal. But the statement you made to me was like a pure F statement. It had a forward component, task component to it, but it was neutral on the positive, negative, or the dominant submissive dimension. Wouldn't it be submissive because I'm looking for information? You, you could argue that. Then you get into issues of integrated reliability. Maybe I called it neutral and somebody else might have called it submissive. That's a whole nother sure. question. The way you deal with integrated reliability is you have multiple raters and you score multiple acts and you hope that in the, it all comes out in the wash. In other words, you hope that on average you get a realist, a reasonably accurate representation of reality. And there's this term I like called pragmatic reality. In other words, is your view of reality good enough for whatever your purpose is? So the aim of Bales' system was to, uh, to define the pragmatic reality 
You want to understand the group enough to do something useful, improve its functioning, for example. So it's possible to give Simlog rating sheets to a family and have them rate each other. And it doesn't have to be in real time. You can say on average or in general, does this person display this type of behavior rarely, sometimes, or often? And if you aggregate enough ratings on all the dimensions for all the players in a family, you can map the family constellation. And you can see here's a group that's unified and here's maybe there's subgroups within the family. You could see this in a family with multiple branches. We've got this group over here, but they're polarized against this group over there. And you could ask, given this particular polarization, what are the implications for mediating the conflict? How could you reduce the polarization? What sort of behaviors would you have to demonstrate? Or values represent a kind of an analog to behavior. So for any given behavior, there's an analogous value space in which you can map the behavior to the values. So for example, if somebody behaves in a dominant way, we might assume that they also value things like material success and power. And so Bale's research initially led to the creation of the behavior, the three-dimensional behavior space. So the point of that study was to either map the social relations between individuals, or were you trying to get at an individual's values? Yeah, the answer is both. So if you had multiple individuals in a group, you could have them assess each other's behavior, or you could have them assess each other's values. And uh, you could represent either one with this three-dimensional representation that we were using. So you could see where they fell in the space, and that meant you could see where they fell in relation to each other. And when you look at this in three-dimensional terms, it becomes quite obvious what's going on in the field. This was a field theoretical notion. And uh, if you ever studied like molecular orbitals or that sort of thing, or quantum physics, it really similar in a way, but you don't need to know those esoteric things to see that there's a bunch, there's a cluster over here and a cluster over there. And it's face valid that it makes sense that these people feel more attraction to each other. They feel more alike. They feel more positively towards each other. And these people over here similarly feel more alike and more positive towards each other. But with respect to the opposite group, they feel polarized and they feel more negative feelings. So you could see this in a behavioral representation. You could also see it in a values representation. This is our country today. We've got this huge polarization between people who share different values. Did you ever think of working in the family business? No. <laughs> I was one of those next gens who had a bad experience and said to themselves, I don't want to get anywhere near this. The family business was like staples before Staples. It was an office supply business, and my father also did printing, and he repaired office machines and stuff. So knowing all this background, let me ask you about interviewing for investment management. Yes. How do you pick a good yeah. portfolio manager or hedge fund manager, and what's your thinking on that? Yeah. So it starts by analyzing the job. It starts with taking a look at what does an investment manager do and what differentiates the, how do you tell when someone's done a good job as an investment manager? In other words, what are the relevant factors or variables that you want to consider in evaluating performance? And then you ask yourself, okay, can I find examples of good performance and less good performance? Starts with going through this process of analyzing the work, figuring out what are the relevant factors or variables which distinguish good work from bad, then looking for exemplars of the category of good performers versus bad performers. And then you say to yourself, 
What can we pinpoint that differentiates the best performers from the worst performers or the better ones from the less good ones? And you want to identify the differentiators at the level of observable behavior. In other words, what do the best performers actually say or do that relates to their better performance? When you do that, you can begin to identify various factors, and it depends in part on the nature of the work. So when you look at the nature of the work for an investment manager, for example, you find that it has the characteristic typically of being both complex and ambiguous. So what do we mean by that when it comes to evaluating investment managers? And the prototypical use case or scenario there was one in which an institutional investor would come and say, I'd like you to invest money for us. I'd like you to invest more money for us. You've already got our money. We're happy. And they'd sort of in $100 million increments. Here's another $100 million we'd like you to invest. So if you're the investment manager and you're presented with that job to be done. It's complex because there's an infinite number of things you can do with $100 million. However, the downside of that is that level of complexity can be overwhelming. It's ambiguous, and it's not clear what they want you to do with it at the outset. You don't have enough information to make a good decision. That's the ambiguity. The complexity in a different way, if they told you, I only want you to invest this in U.S. equities, this on the order of 3,000 U.S. equities, so that therein lies the complexity. It's not ambiguous, but it's complex because how do you pick from 3,000? So to be effective, one of the key things that's required is the ability to function well in an environment characterized by ambiguity and complexity. It means, first of all, you have to have what they call tolerance for ambiguity, the tolerance for the unpleasant feelings that are associated with that. Most people, given this challenge, initially will feel some discomfort. And for some people, the discomfort is so great that it interferes with their ability to think clearly to the extent that they can't make the necessary decisions. Other people may not have the intellectual capacity to make the decisions in the first place. So that's another relevant variable having to do with intelligence. But given equal levels of intelligence, can the person regulate their unpleasant feelings adequately so that they're not disrupted and they can engage in some kind of systematic process of dealing with the ambiguity? Why do they have this underlying unpleasant response? Is there some sort of a conflict? Yeah. They have competing desires or they're competing outcomes that they want to accomplish and to avoid, many of which may be outside of their awareness, but we can speculate as to what some of them might be. For example, they want to do a good job. They want to be successful. They want the money to grow in a way that pleases the client. There's things they want to avoid. They want to avoid screwing up. They want to avoid losing the client's money. They want to avoid getting fired. And all of those possibilities are at issue in that moment. They all exist side by side. Also, at some level, they know that in order to make this decision, they need more information. And they don't have all the information they need, in, at least initially. Now, most people know these things implicitly. It's the rare individual that knows all of this explicitly. But even things we know implicitly or things that are in our minds outside of our awareness exert an effect on us. And so people differ in the extent to which they can manage all of this. Some people feel badly. I'm coaching somebody right now who is in an investment firm. He's the head of an investment firm and he feels anxious. And he came to me and he said, I feel anxious. Can you help make this go away? And my feeling is that even if I could, it would not be 
constructive thing to do because our anxiety exists for a purpose. Anxiety, is a, as well as other feelings, represents a source of valuable information. And to make it go away would be to strip him of one important input he needs to do his job effectively. If, if you regard all of your feelings, including the unpleasant ones, including anxiety, as a source of data or as useful information, then you're going to be a better investment manager because you can ask yourself a question, what is this unpleasant feeling telling me in this particular case? And one of the first things I got him to realize was that in many instances where he feels anxious, the message the anxiety is trying to tell him is that he doesn't yet have enough information to do the thing that he's trying to do which is okay. It's great. At the beginning of a problem-solving process, we don't know everything we need to know. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a problem. If we knew everything, we would just do the obvious thing and it'd be solved. So then what's needed is some sort of systematic approach, though, when you're solving problems. And it starts with understanding what are the desired outcomes. So going back to the hedge fund guy or the investment manager presented with the $100 million, Ideally, he would say to himself explicitly, not implicitly, he would say, okay, I feel anxious. Sure. Why not? $100 million is a lot of money. If I lose it all, the stakes are pretty high here. So what is this telling me about what I need to do? It's telling me I need to get more information. What kind of information? The most powerful kind of information I can get is information that will help to reduce the ambiguity in this situation. And that includes especially information about the client's goals or what are their desired outcomes. So how do you get that information? The best tool we have is something called the question. One of the most useful purposes questions play is to produce information for the benefit individuals. In some cases, it's for the benefit of the person who's asking the question. In other cases, it's for the benefit of the person who's being asked the question, which is the case often in coaching. Sometimes a coach will ask questions. A coach doesn't care what the answer is. They're asking the question because they want to drive the client's thinking for the client's benefit. But sometimes it's for the benefit of both and maybe for other parties who aren't there as well. Sometimes those are called stakeholders. So who's involved in this situation is a good question to ask. And what are their interests? And uh, but in the case of the investment, we ask some pretty mundane questions that are fairly predictable to people in this field. We might say, okay, $100 million, what percentage of your portfolio does that represent? Are we talking about all the money or a little sliver of the money? And to the extent that's not 100% of the portfolio, knowing what percent it is, where is your... where's in what ways is the remainder of the portfolio invested? Because if it's all in T-bills, that has certain implications. If it's all in angel investments, that has other implications. This is what they call risk analysis. So we ask some questions, we, we size up the nature of the portfolio, we begin to get some feeling for the risk. And then there's other, you know, there are other relevant factors or variables here. One might be the risk tolerance. So we might say, look, hypothetically, if there was a drawdown of 20% in this portfolio, what would happen? Would you get fired? Do you have stakeholders who would sue you? Or is that fine? And knowing the answer to that question helps to reduce the ambiguity. And anyway, most people probably get the idea by the, this point, but you could generate a whole series of questions. And this is what good investment managers do. And when they have asked enough of these questions, the ambiguity is reduced substantially and it becomes much clearer what they need to do.
You think it's a good idea to evaluate the emotional regulation ability of an individual before they become an investment manager? Are there ways to gauge the emotional responses of the individual before they get the job? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the modern term for this is emotional intelligence. So people will say, when I hire a, an investment manager, my experience tells me that it's a high-pressure job, and some of them, at least in some of these roles, have to deal directly with the clients, and clients are not always happy. It's easy when they're happy, but if they're upset, it requires a fair amount of, you know, we might call emotional intelligence to deal with them. And there are other things required to be successful in a job, like conceptual thinking ability or problem-solving ability when it comes to investing the money itself. But when it comes to dealing with the client, for example, emotional intelligence is important. And actually, if you're familiar with the ups and downs of being an investment manager, even if you don't have to deal with the client, you got to deal with your own emotions as you live through the ups and downs of the market. But the ideal person is one who is fully aware of their feelings and can use those as data, in which case their feelings might be their best friend. Neither emotional intelligence nor conceptual thinking is a unitary construct. So if I say to you, does this person have emotional intelligence? How the hell would you know? Or is this person a good conceptual thinker? How would you know? What you need to do is differentiate it into its component elements and to identify component elements that exist at the level of observable behavior. So for example, if we think of emotional intelligence, whose emotions are we talking about? Might be your emotions, it might be my emotions. Mine, conceptually, we might call those internal. Yours, from my point of view, are external to me. So right away with emotional intelligence, we can make that conceptual distinction. We say, how well does a person understand their own emotions and how well do they understand the emotions of the person they're talking to? Internal, external, yours, mine. Those are two different things. And they require two different types of observation in order to make an assessment of the person's capacity. And to talk about their emotional intelligence in general requires some buildup of a rating made from these component elements. We could do a weighted average. We could do a simple unweighted average. But if we have two elements, we might score them both and put them together. We differentiate and then we integrate. Now, it turns out that emotional intelligence could be differentiated much further, though. It's not just awareness of my feelings and awareness of your feelings. It could also be being aware of one's feelings is different than regulating those feelings. So we might say there's emotional self-regulation. Now, what's the external analog? Of? Can I regulate your internal, you know, your feelings? Well, to some degree, if I have an awareness of how my behavior impacts your feelings, I might be able to lead you in the direction of feeling more one way or another. For example, when we're talking about leadership behavior, we sometimes use the term motivation. So we say this leader is good at motivating people. What we're really saying is he understands something about his own feelings, he understands something about other people's feelings, and he knows how to influence that other person's feelings to the point where they feel like doing whatever needs to be done or whatever he wants them to do or whatever. So that's another element. If you go back to the investment example we were discussing and the trader who could be his own worst enemy or could be his own best friend or the trader or investment manager, his feelings, like I've got a bad feeling about this or I feel anxious about this or I've got a good feeling about this, that's data. And potentially, he can integrate that data into his decision-making process. So that we might call emotional reasoning. What about conceptual thinking ability? In choosing an investment manager, one of the things that I've learned is helpful to look for is conceptual thinking ability. And I learned this 
from a hedge fund founder who has had a lot more experience and a lot more success than I. How did you end up doing that work in the first place in general? They were looking for an external partner to help them with, uh, to do searches essentially for senior level investment managers, as well as senior level executives for the firm. And uh, they had this philosophy of hiring the best and the brightest, and uh, they were pretty resourceful and they had somebody do some research and uh, they literally, they went into the MIT alumni directory and they searched on the term executive search and there weren't a lot of people in there, but they turned up my profile and they contacted me and vetted me. They told me that they were operating on the takes one to no one theory, that they wanted to hire people who were strong conceptual thinkers and problem solvers. And they figured somebody who started out getting a bachelor's at MIT in physics would likely know something about problem solving. That, that's how I got tapped. Strange story. But anyway, they oriented me to what they were looking for. And one of the things they said, and this process was a process that took place in increments over time, even over a few years, really. But as I came to know them, I came to know that what they valued was strong, quote-unquote, conceptual thinking ability. And this was based on the founder's experience and his wisdom about what made for success. However, when I asked them to define for me what they meant by this term, I got a kind of a vague, we'll know it when we see it. And I was forced to ask myself, what do I make of that? And I thought there are at least two reasonable explanations here. One is that they know exactly what they're looking for, but like many hedge funds, they keep their cards closed to the vest and they don't want to share it with me as an outside partner. So one possibility was that they knew, but they weren't telling. The other possibility was that they really didn't know that they had some intuition or some not well-defined sense of what this really meant. But in any case, it fell to me to figure out what to do. And so what I said to myself was, look, this is something you're trained in. Why don't you spend some time thinking about this and see what you can come up with? So I asked myself the question, to the extent that conceptual thinking is a kind of undifferentiated term, what, in my view, are the relevant elements of conceptual thinking that would be useful in performing this task of selecting good investment managers for them. The fancy term for this would be like heuristic utility, <laughs> but you don't need to throw that kind of language at people. But uh, so how could I think about this in a way that would be useful in action? And so thinking about the nature of the work that they do, I identified four elements that seemed like they would be useful. So the first one was the ability to deal constructively in an environment environment characterized by ambiguity and complexity. And uh, this made sense to me because of the most common use case that these investment managers would be faced with was when either a new client or an existing client came to them and said, we were considering investing money with you. And uh, since these were institutional investors, the kind of increment, the typical increment would roughly $100 million at a time. So they might put in 100 million and then later they might say that went well we'll give you another 100 million. So if you think about the challenge of investing 100 million dollars quickly becomes evident that a near infinite variety of things you can do with 100 million dollars from an investment standpoint. So that was one thing. Another thing was that they have to analyze the markets and think about complex relationships in these markets and consider the implications that a lot of different factors and variables have for the prices of the assets that they're buying. And thinking about that, I tried to operationalize it by saying, all right, so we need here the ability to determine the structure of a problem 
in the most generic sense, and to identify what are the relevant factors or variables. That's the starting point for analyzing a market and trying to predict what's going to happen to a particular asset or asset class. In doing this, there's a lot of complex cause and effect relationships. So if you have access to information that says that Chinese exports are down, you might want to ask a question, what is that going to do to the, or what does that say about the likely value or direction of value of the Australian dollar? So what does that imply from a psychological point of view? If you think about what has to go on in the mind of someone who does this kind of work, you say they need to be able to foresee the likely consequences of various actions or choices of action, cause and effect relationships, and not just first order causes, but the second, third, or higher order consequences of something happening. The movement of the Australian dollar is a some kind of nth order consequence in part of what goes on in the Chinese economy and the linkage the premise there is that that China is an important one of the world's largest economies and it's an important trading partner of Australia and uh, China is more the dog, Australia is more the tail. In other words, uh, one has more influence on the other than the other. So the ability to see these kinds of relationships. And then finally, to the extent that markets tend to move in cycles, some very short, like intraday cycles, and some much longer. Some hedge fund managers like to think in terms of broad sweeps of history, 350-year cycles and so on. So that raises the question of, what is the time horizon that someone is able to encompass when they engage in planning and problem solving? So I came up with those four things and I said, this is a pretty good starting point. Let me see how useful these are. And I found in practice that in talking to prospective investment managers, that uh, using these concepts, it was pretty easy to differentiate the ones who had the right stuff from the ones that didn't. We just quickly identify what are the four variables? Ability to deal constructively with ambiguity and complexity, the ability to determine the structure of a problem and identify the relevant factors or variables, the ability to foresee the likely consequences of various choices of action, including the first order or immediate consequences and the longer term or second, third, and higher order consequences, some people would call knock-on effects. And then finally, the time horizon the individual is able to encompass when they engage in planning and problem solving. So how do you go about assessing that? In each case, it's a little bit different, but it's fairly straightforward. So for example, let's take time horizon. The premise is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So you want to elicit some sort of sample of the person's past behavior and analyze it in order to make predictions about their likely future behavior. So with respect to time horizon, you can ask somebody a question like, tell me about the most complex problem you've ever worked on, or tell me about the most complex planning process you've ever been involved in. If somebody says they planned a birthday party for two weeks in the future, and that was the most complex thing they've done, then the time horizon is on the order of a couple of weeks. If they happen to be the chairman of Sony Corporation, and they describe for you their planning process that involves 
consideration of broad societal trends and extends over, say, a 30-year time horizon, that tells you something else. In one sense, the answers could be viewed as falling along a continuum from 10 seconds or whatever to 350 years or beyond. But in another sense, you could think of this as this continuum as not being a continuum. You could think of it as being quantized. There is a now deceased psychologist named Elliot Jacques, a Canadian psychotherapist who developed what he called his stratified systems theory. And what he said was that you can divide these time horizons into seven or eight meaningful prada or bands, and you could see people as falling into one or another of these bands. And they correspond roughly to the way jobs are organized in organizations. So if you think about a frontline worker, like an assembly line worker, they're caught up in the minute-to-minute flow of their job. They have to, planning for them consists of maybe wondering when they're going to run out of the part that they're contributing to the assembly. And uh, so it might be minutes or hours that, that they're thinking about. The supervisor of their shift may be thinking about production for the day or for the week. And that supervisor might report to a boss who's concerned about the monthly budget or the quarterly budget. They, in turn, may report to a a director or a VP who's concerned about the annual cycle. What's our annual budget and how are we doing with respect to that? And depending on the structure of the organization, it could be called a VP or a senior VP. They may be thinking in terms of a two to three year time horizon. They might be implementing some kind of improvement effort that's going to take a few years to come to fruition. And then you get up to the president of the division. Maybe they're thinking ahead towards being acquired in somewhere in a three to seven year time horizon. And then finally, the chairman of the board is thinking even longer term. Could be thinking three to seven years and beyond. So in this way, Jacques came up with these seven or eight strata. And so he classifies people into the different levels. Anybody can do this. There are consultants who will do this for you and they charge a lot of money. But if you follow the description I just gave, you you could do it 80% as well as they could. Wasn't part of that theory, and this goes back to executive function, is it was something to do with persistence. It's the fact that the higher up you go in this hierarchy that you just described, the more persistent people are with individual tasks. Yeah, the ability to maintain focus over a longer time period, I think, correlates with the ability to think in those terms. In other words, somebody who's not capable of thinking about the same thing or Think about something and projecting ahead years forward will likely feel uncomfortable when asked to do that. And one of the natural facts about humans is that when things are uncomfortable, we tend to avoid them. I guess that's the most straightforward way to put it. So in other words, if people differ in their capacity to think far into the future, that will affect how they feel when asked to do it. And that in turn will affect their ability to persist. So once you've gotten a pool of candidates, most of these folks are pretty highly functional. And probably after you've sifted for conceptual thinking, how do you then take it to the next step? How do you pick from that pool? For one thing, conceptual thinking ability is not the only factor that comes into play here. 
Every organization has a culture, for example, and oftentimes they're looking for people who they would describe as being a good cultural fit. And depending on the culture, that may point in the direction of different kinds of qualities. For example, an organization that really cares about its customers and wants to convey to customers a sense that they've been listened to and understood, then that implies the need for people with a high degree of emotional intelligence. And just like conceptual thinking ability is not a unitary construct any more than communication. A person needs good communication skills. When we communicate, there's at least three chunks you could break it into. You say there's outbound communication, like talking and writing, and there's inbound communication, like the listening. In between the inbound and the outbound, ideally, there's some processing that takes place. So you could say, how do they take in information? How do they process it? And then how to communicate outwards. And similarly with emotional intelligence, you can say, to what degree are they aware of their own emotions? To what degree are they aware of others' emotions? To the extent that they pick up on emotional information from themselves or from others, to what degree are they able to incorporate that information into their problem solving and decision making? That's sometimes called emotional reasoning. And then there's also the aspect of control and influence. So to what degree, given that whatever their level of awareness of their own emotions is, to what degree can they control those emotions, for example, in a stressful situation? And to the extent that they understand the emotional life of others with whom they deal, to what degree can they use that information to influence those people? Most There's all sorts of influence. Some we could place value judgments on different types, but in positive terms, thinking in terms of someone in a leadership role, we commonly think about how effective are they at motivating the people who work for them. You think that's important when you're picking someone for their investment management skills? Does it matter how well they work with the team? If you find somebody who's very sharp but doesn't work well with others, maybe you still want to select them? This is where organizational culture comes in. If you have a team-oriented culture and you tend to organize your investment managers into teams and you expect them to work together collaboratively, that mitigates in the direction of choosing people who have a higher level of emotional intelligence. If you maybe you're a quant shop and all you want is someone who can come up with a brilliant algorithm and they're okay with working in a cubicle and having you pass pizza boxes through the opening, then that points in a different direction. Is there any way to predict high performance? It starts with having objective measures of performance, because if you want to build a model, a predictive model, you have to be able to operationalize the criterion that you're predicting. If we, and it's hard with investment managers, because if you're looking at rate of return or alpha, there's a lot of factors that come into play in influencing those outcomes. On the other hand, if you have somebody who generates alpha, if they can beat the benchmarks year in and year out, and you can assign a specific statistical likelihood that their good performance was due to skill rather than luck. And in that way, you can say, okay, so now we are able to identify our top performers. Then you want to work backwards from there and say, okay, if we have a meaningful variable and we can measure performance, we can then compare performance between our highest performers and our lowest performers or the highest performers and everybody else. And the next step is to look for differentiating factors. So you say you could start by generating all sorts of tentative hypotheses about what might differentiate the top performers from the lower performers. And then you can do a statistical analysis to see what is the predictive power of any given variable that you look at. 
And eventually you come down to identifying certain things that seem to be predictive. So you don't have any sense of what the major variable would be? I think one of the key factors has to do with the ability to maintain clear thinking, to continue to think clearly in the presence of unpleasant feelings. And is there any way to test for that? Yes. There's psychological tests that do this sort of thing. This is exactly what the Rorschach was designed to do. Not that many people would use Rorschachs for employee selection, but you show somebody a card that has a picture on it, and the pictures are different, but they're designed or chosen for different purposes. And there are some pictures that are specifically chosen to evoke in the person negative feelings, depression or anxiety, sadness or anxiety. These black cards that have semi-ominous feeling images on them, they are intended to evoke those feelings. And then the person is asked to talk about what they see on the card. And there's a specific way that psychologists are trained to interpret what they say under those circumstances. And interestingly, the common assumption among laypersons is that the psychologist is interested in the content of what they say. If they say, oh, that looks like a bat, or that looks like a spider web, or something like that, that they're going to make some meaning out of that. Just they think that maybe psychologists can interpret dreams, but that's not the way it works. What the psychologist is actually doing is they will have a conversation with the person. They'll say, tell me more. What led you to think that this looked like a bat? And they pay attention to the quality of the thought process that led to that conclusion. And they compare, they have what they call the determinants of the person's response That is to say, what made it look like a bat? And if they say, looks like there's two wings here, and they trace the outline of the wings, if a normal person who's not psychotic could see that there's some symmetry and that there's something that does look like a wing, they would say, that's a pretty good determinant. That means a person's thought process is relatively undisturbed by these unpleasant feelings that were evoked by the card. If, on the other hand, they say something really far out that doesn't fit with what thousands of other people have said about the card. Like if they said, that dot in the upper right-hand corner, I saw that dot and I thought wing. Most sane people would not draw the conclusion, would not go from seeing a dot to imagining a wing. But from the point of view of an HR person or a hiring manager, not going to do this, presumably, unless you outsource it to a third party trained in this way. The person who taught me, by the way, this was part of the business that he had. He did executive assessments for corporations. And when I studied with him, he said, let me teach you all how I do this when a company comes to me. But in the context of an interview, you would say, tell me about a time when, this is called behavioral interviewing. You try to get the person to recall a, an instance and kind of rerun the movie for you. Show me the game film from a time when you had to make a decision under difficult circumstances. And you can be more or less specific depending on how much you want to control their response. But if you put it at that level of generality, it gives you the opportunity to find out what difficult means from that person's perspective. One person's notion of difficult might be, it was this time when I wanted something from my parents and I didn't get my way and that was really difficult. Another person might say, I was in the special forces and there was this time when we came under fire in Iraq and that was difficult. You know, that tells you a lot about what it takes to evoke unpleasant feelings in those two individuals. What do you think about the widespread, somewhat amateur use of things like the disc or using (laughs) Myers-Briggs? 
because <laughs> in, so, in, uh, it's very common in, in corporate settings for folks to use them and they don't have a lot of training. Yeah. So not only do they not have a lot of training, but they either haven't read the instructions on the package <laughs> or in the case of the Myers-Briggs, or they've chosen for whatever reason to ignore them because the Myers-Briggs publishers say specifically, this instrument is neither valid nor reliable and should not be used for employee selection purposes. The people who publish the disc, I think maybe are a little less circumspect and a little more likely to suggest that this could be a useful tool for employee selection. But whether it meets the legal standards of being robust enough to be non-discriminatory, I think that's up to the courts to determine. And I'm not a lawyer and I don't know exactly what the rulings have been. But personally, I would not use an instrument that hasn't been demonstrated to be both valid and reliable. And reliable means for example, there's different types of reliability, but one is called so-called test-retest reliability. So if you take the Myers-Briggs twice in a row or two weeks apart, the odds are fairly high that you're going to get two different scores. Should it be legally defensible to base an employment decision on that? I think not. And so did the publishers of the Myers-Briggs. So God knows why people might still use it. Now, with respect to validity, what validity means essentially is the instrument measuring what it says it's measuring. And there's different kinds of validity. So there's, first of all, something called face validity, which means if you're trying to find an investment manager, does the instrument ask questions that relate to things that investment managers do? So if they ask you to do some mathematical calculations or look at a stock chart and answer some questions, that would seem to have face validity. If they ask you something totally far afield, tell me what you dreamed about last night, <laughs> that doesn't meet the criterion of having face validity. It could still have criterion-related validity, though. I, I'd be a little dubious about that. But the way you show criterion-related validity is you have to, what is it we're trying to predict with this test in the first place? Why are we giving it? Presumably, you're trying to predict job performance. You think that it's very common to compare investment managers to athletes in the sense that they go through slumps. Is there any psychological insight that you can get from why folks have investment performance slumps? First of all, slumps are characteristic of any sort of stochastic process. So if we flip a coin, there's a 50-50 chance that it's going to be heads or tails. But if I flip a coin 100 times, there will be, let's say we arbitrarily declare heads to be the better outcome. There will be streaks of heads and there will be streaks of tails. And those have nothing to do with the, the coin itself, unless it's a loaded coin. They just have to do with the fact that we live in a world where many phenomena are subject to random variation. It's helpful for investment managers to know that about the world. And I think the best ones probably cut themselves a bit of slack if they have a run of bad outcomes. I once recruited for a quant trading firm and asked what they were looking for. They said, we want people who are good at probabilistic thinking. So this means that when they look at what occurs in the world, they naturally are inclined to differentiate between what might be the result of random variation and what might be the result of something else. So the better performers or the ones who are better able to handle a slump, in addition to their general ability to tolerate unpleasant feelings, they probably have a higher level of higher aptitude for 
tendency to think in probabilistic terms. And uh, and so they don't take things personally that shouldn't be taken personally. Maybe there's something beyond normal statistical variation. And that's where the problem-solving skills come in. They say, what's the general market trend? If the market trend is down for four days, then it's not their fault that their portfolio went down for four days, or it's certainly less likely to be. So their emotional state will be influenced by the meaning that they attach to events. As an interviewer, I would ask people, so when that happened, what do you when that sort of thing happens, what do you tell yourself? This kind of question could be very revealing. If they tell themselves, for example, I forgot to rub my lucky charm on the way into work. It's interesting that you say that because it's you would think that by the time you get to that seat, I think that th- you have probably passed through so many filters that most of the neurotics have been filtered out. Yeah. So it's uh-huh. go- and the depressed, the folks who are most likely to catastrophize things. But at the uh-huh. same time, dealing with something as unpredictable as the market and dealing with the amount of assets that you have on the line is a very emotional experience. Yes. So I'm interested in that tension, that internal tension. Yes. Yeah. We all have desired outcomes and life is much simpler when we only have one. If our only desired outcome was to maximize our investment performance, for example, we could focus exclusively on that. But if we also want to present ourselves to the client in the most favorable possible light, that represents another possible goal or desired outcome. And or if we want to be seen by our boss in the most favorable light, or we don't we want to be known as someone who never makes mistakes. I'm thinking about Bernie Madoff here. At some point, I assume that Madoff was a legitimate investor at some point in his career, but at some point the internal calculus or the internal balance between all his various desired outcomes tipped in the direction of saying, nah, it doesn't make sense to really trade and invest on people's behalf. Make more sense just to focus on convincing them that's what I was doing and that I was doing it exceptionally well. And in that way, I could just keep taking their money up to a point. So people have all these different desired outcomes going through their head, and some of them they're aware of, some of them not fully aware of, or outside of their attention on a day-to-day basis, but they're still there. And they all have an effect on how they think and how they feel. From a selection point of view, the way you get at this is you ask these behaviorally oriented questions. Tell me about a time when you were in a slump and your investments weren't performing well. What was this, what were the circumstances? What thoughts went through your head? What did you tell yourself? And what did you do about it? How did that work out? What did you learn from the experience? And so on. And that produces a lot of information that, especially if you listen to many candidates, if you ask the same question of many candidates, and you have some experience actually making hires and seeing how those hires worked out, Eventually, you begin to build up a kind of a schema, a mental representation of what good answers are. Do you think there's a difference between entrepreneurial and analytical thinkers? Do you think one group is just better at problem solving or are they just different kinds of problems? 
When we think of entrepreneurs, it's a bit of a mixed bag. If you ask several different people what other words come to mind when you hear the word entrepreneur, they probably get a variety of responses. But some words that come to my mind are creative. Some people might say risk takers. Other people might say, oh, no, it's the opposite. Entrepreneurs are all about identifying the risks and minimizing them. But I think that if you Let's say you go with with my first impulse, which was to think of entrepreneurs as being creative or associating entrepreneurship with creativity. What is creativity? One element of creativity has to do with seeing things that other people don't see. And in, in the business context, that often means seeing opportunities that other people don't see. Jeff Bezos saw that if you could hook people on buying books online, you could expand from there and get them to buy anything. Most people who heard about this guy trying to sell books online in the early days would not have seen what Bezos said. They might have even said he was nuts or this business isn't going to amount to much or that sort of thing. Now, that ability to see things that other people don't see, I don't think necessarily is entirely correlated with what's measured by IQ tests. We're getting into some interesting territory here. My longest live mentor, Jerry Borofsky, who was the chief psychologist at Mass General Hospital, he did his PhD thesis on the difference between genius and madness. And he said both geniuses and insane people had good access to what some people call or psychologists call primary process thought. It's the just the stuff that bubbles up uncensored in the mind when we let our minds go free. The difference between the geniuses and the crazy people is that the geniuses could go into the realm of primary process and come back. They had the ego strength to to step back and analyze what had bubbled up and ask themselves, how does this connect to reality? How does this connect to what I'm trying to deal with? For example, people who are paranoid make connections that aren't really there or make connections that other people wouldn't agree were there. There's a policeman standing on the corner. That means he's standing there because he wants to get me. Everybody sees the policeman, but not everybody thinks the policeman's there to get them. There could be other reasons why the policeman's there, and the paranoid misses that. So the person who can't come back from that, whose ego is not strong enough to perform the executive function of comparing these thoughts that have bubbled up with reality, that person we say is mentally ill. Is there a difference between the entrepreneurial skill set and the executive skill set? And can people make that transition? It's funny because I I met Michael Dell when he was in his late 20s. I was facilitating a workshop at a conference on strategic planning, and he was sitting on my left, and there was some curmudgeonly CEO of another company sitting on my right. I was sandwiched in between them. And we're talking about strategy. And suddenly in the middle of this conversation, a non sequitur, the old guy on my right kind of leans across me toward Michael Dell. And he says with this sneering expression, you're nothing but a clone maker. (laughs) And uh, I thought to myself, now this is going to be interesting. Let's see how this young guy responds to this guy. And Michael Dell just collected himself. He wasn't throwing at all. And calmly, he responded by talking about his company's investment in intellectual property and the number of patents they had filed in the last year. And he basically said, no, we're not just a clone maker. We're creating our own intellectual property. And that means we're going to create new products that are not just clones of other products. We got a future, buddy. 
<laughs> and I thought to myself, yeah, you do. But the thing about it was he was in his late 20s. He was having great success, but he took his butt up from Texas to New York to attend this conference. Why? Because he wanted to learn. He was committed. He was willing to accept that he didn't know it all in spite of the great success that he had already enjoyed. And he identified the areas in which he wanted to become better. And he was proactive about going out and developing those skills. I think part of the takeaways has to do with, one has to do with the person's hubris or lack of that their willingness to admit that they don't know it all, and then their willingness to be proactive in identifying opportunity, proactive and systematic in identifying opportunities to learn and grow, and their willingness to tolerate or ability to tolerate the unpleasant feelings associated with that. Paul Edelman, thank you so much for sharing your (laughs) thoughts with me today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.